Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I want to wish you all a happy 2012. Welcome back to the show. We have a very important guest here today. His name is Dr. Thomas Levy. He is the author of Uninformed Consent, The Hidden Dangers in Dental Care, along with Hal Huggins, The Roots of Disease, Connecting Dentistry and Medicine, Stop America's Number One Killer, Curing the Incurable. And today we're going to be talking about his newest book called Primal Panacea, overwhelming documentation that proves that in high enough doses, vitamin C prevents and cures cancer, heart disease, infectious and degenerative diseases, and can neutralize and even reverse damage from virtually all toxins, venoms, and radiation. He's a cardiologist with a huge background in medicine. He says in his book, In Primal Panacea, that there are seven medical lies that kill. I want to name them for you because this contextualizes the essence of his contribution with vitamin C. The first medical lie that kills is that there are no vitamin C studies. The second one is that there's no evidence that vitamin C works. The third one is that vitamin C is not safe. The fourth is that vitamin C causes kidney stones. The fifth lie is that vitamin C needs are met by normal dietary intake. The sixth one is that high-dose vitamin C makes expensive urine. And number seven is if vitamin C worked, we'd all be using it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Dr. Thomas Levy, MD, JD, who's going to blow your mind about how important vitamin C is and a brand new form of delivery. Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome, Dr. Thomas Levy, to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Hi, Kim. Good morning. I'm glad you're having me on the program. I don't know what I would do if I were you in possession of your professional experience, your broad, deep-level research, your many years of work and study with Dr. Hal Huggins, who we've had here, and what you see in terms of factual evidence of the contribution of vitamin C. I don't know how it would be to be you, but I wouldn't want to be in your shoes. <laughs> well, sometimes it's good to be in my shoes and sometimes it isn't. So I, I think I understand where you're coming from. I know that this goes on with different vitamins and minerals. Sometimes somebody does so much research like you that it looks like that vitamin or that mineral, just its essence can cure all these diseases and some people just don't buy it, and yet you present so much factual evidence. The first thing I want you to talk about, if you wouldn't mind, is that when we're talking about vitamin C, you're really talking about the high-dose vitamin C, and you're talking about a dose-specific truth. Am I correct? Absolutely. I mean, it's healthy to eat fruits and vegetables, uh, and they all have vitamin C, but the amounts of vitamin C that those fruits and vegetables have uh, only scratch the surface when it comes to the things that vitamin C and other potent antioxidant supplementation can do when you dose it high enough. Is it true that most vitamin C that the public is familiar with at a consumer level is either the wrong kind of vitamin C or being delivered the wrong way? And if so, why? Yes, that is largely true. Uh, for one thing, the doses of vitamin C that even most people take in supplements, while it does good, and I don't want to discourage people from taking vitamin C at any dose because a little is a heck of a lot better than slim to none, uh, but the form in which you take it is also important because vitamin C, unfortunately, is not that well absorbed as you take higher doses. And so much of the information in the book comes from studies that have been done with people taking vitamin C by vein, uh, along with the fact that we now have some oral preparations that are what we call encapsulated in liposomes that are ex absorbed extremely well and delivered inside the cells. Uh, however, the regular vitamin C that most people take although definitely of great benefit, and if you take it persistently, uh, multiple doses uh, when you're sick with a cold or flu, almost certainly you'll reduce the duration of that illness dramatically. It still doesn't represent the type of benefits that can be obtained 
when you're able to get a hold of truly high-dose vitamin C that as can be given by vein or taken in a liposome encapsulated preparation. For example, someone had told me, doctor, that when you take traditional vitamin C in the U.S., that a lot of it is from China. Is that correct? Oh, gosh. In this country, a lot of everything's from China. I know. <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. A, a lot of it comes from China. I want to say it doesn't mean per se it's not good vitamin C. Uh, the only thing you have to concern yourself with uh, when dealing with any sort of supplier is the integrity of the supplier and that what you're being sold is, is what you bargained to buy. Uh, I've dealt with a fair amount of vitamin C over the years from China, uh, and I've had very good results, and, and I have no reason to believe or to make people afraid that if it says it's from China, they're not getting any value in the product. Uh, having said that, there are certainly higher quality ways to make it uh, and purify it uh, and make sure that you're getting, shall we say, the biggest bang for your buck. But being from China, per se, doesn't, doesn't mean you're not getting something good. There's just been a lot of news about dog food, baby food problems from China, all kinds of supplier problems. So that's why I wanted to ask you about that. But what are the blood levels of vitamin C since we don't make it? And I thought it was very interesting that most of the animal kingdom makes high levels of vitamin C, but we don't. Why do you think we used to make vitamin C and that we don't anymore? That has to do with the nature of mutations. And somewhere along the line because we know very clearly from very solid and reproduced research that there's a four-enzyme sequence inside the liver of the human as well as in many animals in which you take ordinary glucose or blood sugar and convert it in four steps to the vitamin C molecule, ascorbate. Now, in human beings and in a very limited number of animals, specifically primates and certain bats, that enzyme that converts in the fourth step the remaining product to vitamin C uh, is deficient to absent, in most cases absent. And what's interesting is it's what we call a point mutation, and anybody that studied any genetics know that point mutations can reverse. They can mutate forward and they can mutate back to the normal form. I actually believe, and there was actually an early study, I believe in the New England Journal of Medicine, in which they wanted to see how long it took to make, quote, ordinary people become severely enough vitamin C deficient to develop scurvy, the deficiency disease of vitamin C. And so they took six people, young people, and did everything they could to deplete the vitamin C from their regular diet. Four of them, after about three or four months, started showing the signs of scurvy and had virtually no measurable vitamin C anymore in their urine. But two people continued to spill vitamin C in their urine. Now, what was probably even more amazing than this is rather than trigger some sort of scientific curiosity that, aha, we've discovered a percentage of people that are able to make vitamin C, they just cut those two people out of the study because that wasn't what they wanted to look at. But the impact of this is that I can't give you a percentage, but I think there are a substantial number of people that to a limited degree can make some vitamin C in response to stress and toxins and infections. And I would submit to you that this probably accounts for some of the peoples and different cultures that we know that survive a very long period of time. Uh, this is why some people, I believe, live healthy well into their hundreds while as others die in their 50s and 60s of heart attacks and cancer. But coming back to your original question, why did it all occur? I, I can't tell you. I can't tell you. We, anytime you get a mutation genetically, what determines whether it persists or not uh, is generally considered to be whether or not uh, you give a survival advantage to that mutation. I certainly don't know of any survival advantage that uh, losing your ability to vitamin C makes, but it does appear that this mutation is very common among most people. Is there a specific test that we can take to measure our vitamin C levels in our blood? Yes. No, it's very simple, straightforward, uh, plasma vitamin C, and uh, also uh, it's measurable in the urine very quickly by... Uh, a dipstick method. Method. So uh, no, it's it's very 
It's very easy to measure. It's very, very easy to know uh, when somebody comes into a hospital, if you're interested, <laughs> hello doctors, whether your vitamin C level is low in that patient or not, because if it is low, and I'll tell you it will be low practically all the time when people enter the hospital, and especially so after they've been in the hospital for several days to weeks because nothing is done to bolster or restore vitamin C uh, when you go into the hospital these days. The only things that happen are those things that consume vitamin C, uh, infection, stress, surgery, you name it. So it could be easily checked, and even if doctors didn't want to embrace everything that I'm outlining about vitamin C, if they just went to the extent of trying to give enough vitamin C to bring that plasma or bud level back into the normal range, phenomenal things would happen for their patients. What's considered a normal range, for example, just for the audience to have a frame of reference? What do you think? Uh, that, that depends on the laboratory and the measurement factor. I, I can't give you a number off the top of my head. but uh, Is there a window, like from such and such? Oh, yeah, sure. There's, there's a range. And as is the case with most blood tests these days, what is really normal is usually not what you see with the test because most tests uh, under or overestimate what should be normal because, and this is interesting, scientific tests, laboratory tests are designed so that when you look at the whole population, most of the population is going to be in the normal range. So they use the people to determine the normal range rather than what's absolutely correct to determine whether it's uh, deficient or in excess in people. So when you look at a lot of different blood tests, for example, people that have a lot amount of dental toxicity, uh, the mercury, root canals, and when all of that comes out of the mouth and all that toxicity is taken away from the patient, all of a sudden their lab works change and what becomes normal is a much, much tighter range rather than have a normal range of 2 to 10, if you will, the normal range up, ends up being 5 to 6 because that's how the normal population defines it. You say that high-dose vitamin C is practically a clinical miracle because it's one of the safest substances known to man and because of the things that you've mentioned in your book, all of the evidence from amputation, viral infections, HIV, AIDS, Ebola, hepatitis, pneumonia, flu, shingles, herpes, the list goes on. Have you ever had somebody say to you when you're doing your talks around the world, it can't impact all of these diseases? Well, sure. And it's very understandable that at first blush, uh, most people and most doctors would think the old uh, adage, if it's too good to be true, then it probably isn't. Well, there are exceptions to that rule. And on rare occasion, when something is too good to be true, hey, guess what? It really is. The thing about vitamin C, and this accounts for the title of the book, Primal Panacea, panacea basically meaning, if you look in your dictionary, a, a wide-ranging cure-all type of potion. That's what a panacea is. Vitamin C is what it is and does what it does because it's absolutely the way nature is designed to take care of stress and disease. And this is what we see in the animals. When animals get stressed, when they get challenged with infections, uh, when they eat some poison or something toxic, guess what? When their livers are working normally, all of a sudden the livers start cranking up huge amounts of vitamin C from the glucose stores inside their body. And this is how nature, primal, deals with diseases of all variety. And the reason it works with diseases of all variety is because we come right down to what is disease, what is infection, what is toxicity. And I'm going to tell you, the bottom line is that all of them, 100% of them, are caused by and are mediated by what's called oxidative stress. If you don't have excess oxidative stress inside your body, guess what? You don't have disease. And so to the extent that diseases come in, and they produce oxidative stress, which is at a molecular level, the loss of electrons. You bring in large amounts of antioxidants, which at the molecular level 
are electron suppliers, then you're able to block the effects of the oxidative stress in the body. And depending on your genetic predisposition, this will mean whether or not you're having less of a tendency toward high blood pressure or cancer or heart disease or any other chronic degenerative disease. And all acute infectious processes, these all mediate their ultimate negative effects by increasing oxidative stress. And so this is why, magically, if you will, vitamin C seems to help to one degree or another just about everything. You say in the book that in the traditional delivery of vitamin C, a lot of it will be absorbed by the intestines. But because of this liposomal delivery breakthrough, it doesn't. Can you explain a little bit about the breakthrough in the delivery substance or the delivery method a little more clearly to us? Yeah, well, regular vitamin C that's not encapsulated in, micro, in, in liposomes uh, has a limited amount of absorbability. Uh, and when you start taking megagram doses, uh, 9, 10, 11 grams, you might only absorb 10% of it. When you take small amounts, 50 milligrams, 100, or even 500 milligrams, the vast majority of that is absorbed. But as you take more, you absorb less. And obviously what we're talking about here is for a lot of different disease processes, you want to get large amounts of vitamin C properly absorbed. Well, the liposomes <clears throat> is a science that's been developing for about the past 45 to 50 years uh, in which they discovered that when you had a water solution of something, and you put the right type of phospholipids, which are fats, lecithin-based fats, uh, into the water, and then apply the right pressure to the water, the fats ball up because they're, they don't absorb into water, and so they make little microscopic balls around what was dissolved in the solution. So if you start with a solution of vitamin C, and you can do it with many, many other things, and you properly do what needs to be done to turn these lipids into these liposomes, you end up having these super microscopic, nanoscopic, if you will, balls of fat uh, anywhere from 100 to 200 mic uh, nan nanometers in diameter. Uh, you end up with a solution filled with this, and the thing that's great about this is these little microscopic spheres of fat are so small that they can do any of a number of things. One is they're small enough to naturally pass through the pores in the cell wall. Another is the fat that's used, incredibly enough, is the same type of substance that actually makes up the cell walls in the body. So sometimes the liposome will just hit a cell wall and fuse with the cell wall, become part of the cell wall, and deposit its contents inside. And all of this is even made more impressive by the fact that you're able to get vitamin C that you swallow eventually inside the cells of your body, and this is really important, without the consumption of energy. Whenever you take vitamin C in any other form and most other supplements in their regular form, they need one way or another to be taken up by an energy-consuming carrier process to get inside cells. So you end up robbing Peter to pay Paul, if you will. You end up consuming energy that's always needed to get energy-producing substances where you want them. I mean, you, it's like anything else. You can't transport anything anywhere without energy. But in the case of liposomes, just using the natural mechanisms in the body, they can pass into the cells and deliver their payloads without consuming energy in the process. And this, I believe, is why many times for acute infections, I have seen anyway, that a much smaller dose of oral liposome encapsulated vitamin C can have an equal or even superior effect to larger doses of vitamin C given intravenously. I was wondering how true that really is. I'm glad you're talking about it. Explain why. Well, <clears throat> when you take vitamin C intravenously, uh, you ultimately get it inside the cell in two different ways. Uh, the vitamin C that becomes 
spent or oxidized has already lost its electrons, what's called DHAA, dehydroascorbic acid, has a way that it can just pass into the cell without consuming any further energy. But it's already oxidized and spent, so it's got to be recharged once it's inside the cell and, again, use up cellular energy to become the active form of vitamin C that you want. The rest of the vitamin C that you get from an IV, which is still in its reduced or unoxidized state, needs an active, energy-consuming carrier process at the cell membrane to get that vitamin C inside the cell. So once again, you have to consume energy to get the vitamin C in there. On the other hand, incredibly as it may seem, even though you put the vitamin C there directly into the blood when you take these liposomes by mouth because they're encapsulated in these super tiny lipospheres, it gets into the cells, through the cells, into the blood, and into the payload areas, not only inside the cells, but also inside what's called the subcellular organelles, which is the mitochondria, the nucleus, the endoplasmic reticulum. You get vitamin C delivered deep in the intracellular area, the nucleus, everywhere you need it. So <clears throat> this is why uh, a, a small dose of or lipo C can have an equivalent impact to a much, much larger dose of intravenous. Now, I'm not trying to talk anybody out of getting IV vitamin C by no means. I mean, I, I feel, and it, it's the case for myself and family and friends, that if you're dealing with an illness, especially uh, an acute infection or acute toxin exposure, the more vitamin C in as many different ways that you can get it in the body, the better. So, I mean, I advise taking intravenous, take an oral liposome, take an oral regular vitamin C like sodium ascorbate because this also helps clean out the gut and get rid of toxins there that are compromising things. And then even adding a fourth type of vitamin C called ascorbyl palmitate, which is a fat-soluble form of vitamin C. So I absolutely advocate to get a quick and positive response in just about any condition to get as many different forms of vitamin C in you as possible. Having said that, I will also add that having the liposome encapsulated vitamin C handy is one of your greatest first aids that you can have. Because of this ability to get inside cells, you can in many cases have uh, what we would call an intravenous impact orally. And this was something I didn't even know existed when I started my vitamin C research, but uh, in the last uh, five or six years, <clears throat> the science of liposomes has really leaped forward, leapt forward, and we ha now have available a lot of things to us and a lot of modalities and a lot of methods that uh, Dr. Pauling and Dr. Klenner and Dr. Cathcart uh, just never had the opportunity to see. If people are not taking liposomal vitamin C and they finally order it and they find themselves starting to come down with a cold, what do we do when a cold's coming on? Well, this is not intended to be an invasive, evasive answer, but everybody's different. Everybody's different because the total virus load that you have in your body when a cold is coming on, the presence of other toxins that you have in your body, uh, such as dental and other stored toxins in your tissues, which are all strongly pro-oxidant, all of this determines how rapidly you metabolize your vitamin C and how rapidly you use it up. So you basically take enough to feel better. I mean, for most people, uh, just a couple of the grams of the liposome encapsulated vitamin C will usually make a noticeable difference that somebody can say, hmm, wow, I think I'm doing a little bit better now. And this is what I've also found happens <clears throat> not only with liposome encapsulated vitamin C, but with all forms of vitamin C, is the more you take a vitamin C and the more regularly you take it, and therefore the higher your blood levels are on a day-in, day-out basis, 
the more you develop what I call is your own unique health awareness or health quotient. In other words, you begin to appreciate how it feels to feel really good. And because of that, you're able to tell on any given day that, huh, you know, I just don't have that really good feeling I had the last week. Uh, I must be facing an infectious or a toxic challenge, and this allows you to then acutely bump up your amount of vitamin C and very oftentimes uh, get over an infectious or toxic challenge even before it starts because you're much more aware of when your health is beginning to show a decline. You'd say that cholesterol is not really the villain in heart disease. I really want you to talk about coronary heart disease and how vitamin C impacts the arteries. Well, in a nutshell, first more in general, any disease you develop develops because in the affected tissues, your antioxidant status, usually heralded by your vitamin C status, has dropped to a precipitously low level in that tissue, allowing oxidative stress to start to predominate and then disease processes start. In the case of heart disease, uh, particularly the type of heart disease that most people have, chronic coronary artery disease or atherosclerosis, you develop acute and prolonged, ultimately, deficiencies of vitamin C inside the first cell layer called the endothelium of the coronary artery. And when you have this deficiency of vitamin C, you have, by definition, then an increase in free radicals, an increase in what's called prooxidant species. The natural response of the body to any area of increased free radical or oxidative stress, which is also basically what is inflammation is, the body then sends specific types of white blood cells to that area of the body, usually monocytes, big white blood cells. And these monocytes contain, relative to the rest of the cells of the body, astronomical levels of vitamin C, 80-fold more inside these cells than in most other cells of the body. So in many ways, the inflammatory response of your immune system is almost like the body's natural attempt with a limited resource to try to redistribute, redistribute vitamin C levels to where they're needed. So they're trying to bring vitamin C into areas that have been chronically depleted. The problem is, is this never works because what dropped your vitamin C levels in the first place is rarely addressed. And what usually drops them is dental toxicity. When you're uh, have a lot of mercury in your mouth, but in particularly when you have one or more root canals, you're releasing infectious agents and toxins into your bloodstream around the clock. They make their way through the pulmonary arterial system until they come back into the left side of the heart, left atrium, left ventricle, and then boom, the very first artery after your left ventricle of your heart contracts that all these toxins and microbes are exposed to is your coronary artery. So your coronary artery gets a uh, unduly large percentage of the toxicity and the infectious agents from dental toxicity, as well as other infections in the body. And all toxins, all infectious agents are prooxidants. So when they set up shop, inside these areas, inside the endothelial cells, then the immune system tries even harder to deliver more vitamin C, causing a greater inflammation. And if you look in any medical textbook, you'll see that basically everything that heart disease is is chronic inflammation. So it basically starts a process that can't be reversed until you specifically do a number of things, which is described in the book. But as the inflammation proceeds, 
The levels of vitamin C drop lower and lower, more deeply inside the arterial wall until you finally have an arterial wall that's almost completely devoid of vitamin C. And this is important because the thing that vitamin C is absolutely essential for, in addition to many other things, is the ability to make the supportive structure called collagen. Collagen is a structural protein that gives you tensile strength to different uh, organs in the body, and one of them is the blood vessel wall. So as you become completely deficient in vitamin C in the blood vessel wall, you lose most of the supportive collagen structure, and then you have now a very weak vessel wall that if you do not do something else, it'll just expand like an aneurysm and rupture because it just can't buffer itself against the large arterial pressure that everybody has. And this is where the compensatory mechanism really kicks in because the body always tries to compensate even if you don't give it the things it needs to compensate. So it would like to compensate with vitamin C. None is available. So what else does it try to do? It actually starts building up the thickness of the atherosclerotic plaque in an attempt to make the blood vessel wall stronger because of the collagen that's no longer present. And that, in a nutshell, uh, uh, is, uh, is the process of heart disease and why vitamin C is so intimately involved in it. The fact that this is not known to most doctors in cardiology, you would think it would be urgent medical news. Tell me why, though, the cholesterol has been the villain and why the new knowledge is not seeping in when you have the evidence for it. In other words, what is cholesterol then and why is it still the villain? Well, cholesterol is one of many different what's called risk factors for coronary artery disease, and it is a legitimate risk factor. Uh, the higher your cholesterol levels are chronically, the more rapidly you're going to build up these plaques. So it definitely plays a role uh, in building plaque up. And when you're able to deplete cholesterol way down, you can actually get, uh, in animal studies, regression or reversal of plaque. But what it does not address <clears throat> is the initial causative factor, which is to say cholesterol will not have any effect on causing coronary artery disease unless and until there's the vitamin C deficiency in the arterial wall to allow it to have its effect. And this was one of the main things that Stop America's number one killer that, that sort of shook out as I reviewed the literature is that basically all of the most prominent coronary artery disease risk factors were incapable of having their negative effect uh, in causing coronary artery disease uh, until there was clearly a vitamin C deficiency in their arterial wall. So if you will, the vitamin C was the final common denominator. Now, <clears throat> the danger that comes in particularly with cholesterol is there's certainly nothing wrong with trying to keep your atherosclerosis at bay and keep it from progressing rapidly by taking all these different uh, anti-cholesterol drugs, except that it does not address one extremely important thing. And that is, the higher your cholesterol levels go, the more this is an indication that you have a severe vitamin C deficiency in the body and if all you do is knock the cholesterol down, you can slow the heart disease, but in knocking the cholesterol down, guess what? Cholesterol is also a natural antioxidant, antitoxin type of preparation. And when you knock cholesterol levels down, you lose the body's natural protection against toxicity, and it's been very clear in the literature that the, the lower you drive your cholesterol down artificially with medicines, the greater your chance of cancer. So I didn't know that. I don't think most of the public knew that. That's fascinating. So, uh, you're, again, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. You can reduce your chance of a heart attack while increasing your chance of cancer, and that's not a trade-off. I think most people 
uh, are willing to make if they know that they're making it. I want to ask you about the Oasis of Hope, which you brought up in your book. You talked about how they're using high doses of vitamin C as a protocol without chemo in treating cancer. It's being done. And I wondered if you could share a little bit about that. How are they doing and what's happening? Well, they've been doing this for some years now. Uh, they're doing it. Uh, there's uh, a clinic in uh, Wichita, Kansas, that has been doing this work for quite a few years now. And when you <laughs> get rid of all your uh, medical political biases, it's really very straightforward. Uh, with just about any type of cancer, the more vitamin C you can take, the longer you'll live and the less bothersome symptomatology you'll have. Uh, and if you are able to use the proper delivery system and get the dose high enough and eliminate the things, this is important, that cause the vitamin C deficiency in the first place, which is more often than not dental toxicity, so if you can increase the antioxidants and knock down the source of toxins very, very, very many times, you can get a complete resolution of the cancer. I mean, the mainstream never like to use the word cure, so I just say, okay, you don't want to use the word cure, or let's just say if you do all these things, you can induce a permanent remission. I want to give an example of your work with Hal Huggins, particularly with root canals, that there are three miles of, is it capillaries? Capillary-sized dentin tubules. Okay, so there's three miles of these tubules with toxins that are multiplying, correct? Yes, ma'am. How come we don't know that? Seems like 101. Why doesn't the public, the consuming public, understand that when they're getting a root canal? Well, I tell you what, it's, it's sort of a touchy area, but it starts because a lot of people just believe that the true number one concern of dentists and doctors and other health care providers is the welfare of their patients. And I fought hard against not believing that, for a long time, but as I begin to see so many things rejected and not even intellectually processed and analyzed, in other words, a lot of docs and dentists operate by, you present them with a body of information, and they know because they look at you and they know you're intelligent, they know intuitively you might have something, a point here, their response is to, well, you know, it's not in the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm not even going to waste my time reading it. So they prevent themselves from even having the opportunity to assimilate the information. That's as best I can do. I mean, it's, it's again, something that we, we just don't want to deal with emotionally, intellectually, anything else. But, it, but the bottom line is doctors, lawyers, engineers, architects, politicians, I don't care what the group is, none of them are inclined to do anything that's going to reduce their income, period. I can get that. I get the fear of changing the whole protocol and people getting well, scaring everybody in sight on the delivery side, right? Right. Why is the vitamin C a prime arterial protector? Because it gets rid of free radicals and decreases the oxidative stress? Is that the answer? That, that's it on the button. I okay. mean, the body is designed to operate optimally at a certain minimal amount of oxidative stress that's generated by normal oxidative processes, the processing of oxygen, the delivery of energy to different tissues. All of that will produce a small and limited amount of free radicals and oxidative stress, and then your body naturally processes that, neutralizes it with antioxidants, and the body just hums along like a well-tuned well watch. But when factors come to play that increase the amount of oxidative stress beyond a certain level, <clears throat> then everything starts to break down. And it usually breaks down depending on your unique genetic predisposition, which is why you could take 100 people, put a root canal in or two into them, uh, deprive them of vitamin C, and mm, 
30 will get cancer, 30 will get uh, heart attacks, coronary artery disease, uh, another 30 will get a chronic degenerative disease such as uh, uh, osteoporosis, uh, different types of collagen, vascular disease, lupus, uh, and, uh, and a small miscellaneous. So what you develop really depends on your genetic predisposition, how well your cells are buffered against one disease process, but designed to allow the expression of another disease process when the oxidative stress gets too high in those cells or that tissue or that part of the body. This is really profound. I know several people who have cancer and tumors, and they all have had at least one or two root canals. Some 60 years ago, Dr. Joseph Issels in Germany ran a, for lack of a better word, because I hate the word, alternative, shall we call it, uh, medicine clinic for <clears throat> advanced cancer patients, usually those in which uh, they'd already been through the mill, had everything tried, run out of money as well, out of, as, well as out of the desire to fight their disease, and they heard of the advances that Dr. Issels had at the time, he found that on the average, roughly 95% of the patients that came to him had one or more root canals or otherwise infected teeth. And so he began all his treatments with a complete, what we call, total dental revision, getting rid of all that toxicity and then proceeding with the rest of his protocol. Now, mind you, this was in 1950. Practically nobody was getting root canals back then. So you're talking about something that I can't tell you for sure what the percentage is, but I would say well less than 5% of the population, probably well less than 2% of the population was getting root canals, but 95% of the people that had these advanced cancers had the root canal. So that's a pretty strong correlation. I mean, it's just a correlation. It's not a ipso facto proof type of thing, but it's a pretty hard correlate to just completely ignore. What do you think is the answer in place of root canal? When the tooth has been violated, by that I mean when the pulp has been infected, uh, the pulp is a naturally sterile area. It should have zero pathogens in it zero toxic microbes. So when it becomes violated at all, uh, infection proceeds, and the body has just demonstrated over the years that it cannot completely resolve an internal dental infection. Now, when you get infections in your gums and surrounding a tooth, soft tissue infections, these can be addressed and these can be cured and these can be resolved. But once you violated the inside, the pulp of the tooth, uh, it can't be resolved, and you're only prolonging the inevitable by keeping the tooth. It's sad to say, but what the root canal does is it just largely detaches you from your ability to feel the pain of an infected tooth by cutting out all the nerves and the blood supply inside the tooth so that you can keep this chronic infection but no longer be made uncomfortable by its presence. Why do the dentists think that by cutting out this area that the tooth is viable? What makes it viable uh, as a standard? I don't get that part. Pardon my cynicism, but what makes it viable is a large price tag. It single-handedly sustains a huge number of dental practices, ability to pay mortgages, ability to buy cars, ability to send kids to college, and uh, as long as it remains a highly priced uh, alternative... Uh, it will retain its popularity. That, I am sad to say, is my opinion of the situation. Do you believe in cleaning your tongue every day? Do you think that that would be helpful in getting toxins out of your mouth? I think certainly that has merit. Uh, when you look at the mouth, the mouth is, uh, pardon the expression, literally a cesspool of microorganisms, both good microbes and a lot of bad microbes or pathogens. And maintaining and hygiene of the tongue is certainly one good way to optimize the good microbes and minimize the, uh, the pathogens that are present in the mouth 
and available to uh, infiltrate and colonize when an opportunity uh, is uh, is made present, is made available. So, so I would say I can't give you a how important it is or how good it is, but certainly uh, lingual or tongue hygiene is is good, right along with just hygiene, just about anywhere. You say in Primal Panacea that this form of vitamin C can really help smokers. Talk about why. Well, once again, uh, smokers are quite simply ingesting a huge amount of toxins with every cigarette. I mean, they take it into their lungs, they absorb it through the mucosal linings of their mouth and throat. They're getting an onslaught of toxins of a very wide range. I mean, uh, the, the papers I've seen, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of like the longer you look, the more toxins you'll find. The other thing that's present in a lot of cigarette smokes are excess levels of what's called reactive iron. Uh, now, iron is only good for you in a very limited amount, enough to make a normal amount of blood. And above that, iron is the main... Uh, oxidative stress modulator. In other words, the more iron you have deposited throughout your body, in the arterial walls, wherever you're having oxidative stress take place, you put in more iron. You don't just additively increase the oxidative stress. You increase it exponentially. So the uh, for someone that's played in the chem lab, the uh, iron is like a boiling stone. It, it, it gets it gets things going, and it allows other agents that might otherwise uh, sit without any chemical activity to start rapidly oxidizing the the, uh, the the tissues around it. So, iron, many other toxins. The, the fact that also <clears throat> over time. Smoking actually breaks down the lung tissue so that you're no longer able to get normal amounts of oxygen inside the body. All of these things I think most people can realize are going to cause not only lung cancer where they're specifically present, but if it knocks down your antioxidant levels in your body in general, then all the other toxins and microbes that are present in the mouth and elsewhere that are able to make their way to your cardiac coronary tissues, you're going to be much more likely to develop those type of atherosclerotic blockages uh, and heart attacks over time. You say that we should have our ferritin levels checked. Yes, ferritin level is an index of uh, how high the iron levels are in your body. And this is sort of a side topic, but it's a really important one because it's one that's still completely ignored to my knowledge, by medicine in general. And that is that <clears throat> the levels of iron, remember I was talking earlier about laboratory tests. Okay? Yes. Many laboratories will tell you that the normal range of ferritin or iron stores in your body is anywhere between 20 and 400 nanogram per cc or microgram per cc, I'm not sure which. Well, uh, the lower level is correct, but the other level is astronomical. I mean, you don't want an iron level above 30 or 40, much less three or 400. But what happens is we live in a society where they add iron to everything, all processed foods, supplements, you name it. Uh, we lose our access to the ways we excrete iron naturally is by induced sweating. And as a result, the vast majority of the population is iron toxic. But as I mentioned earlier, you can't or you don't ever have laboratory tests that will make 95% of the population look abnormal. Instead, they just expand the normal range until they can say, well, here's the normal test range because 95% of the people fall in it, therefore it must be normal. That's not the case. Any amount of iron in your body above which it takes to make a normal amount of blood is going to ultimately have a toxic effect. And there's a lot of data to demonstrate this, uh, uh, you know, beyond what we're talking about here in the scope of this little interview. But <clears throat> it's not hidden data. It's only hidden data if you don't look for it. 
You also recommend that if we're going to eat meat that we not have more than two to four ounces at a time. Aside from the other things you're recommending to keep the iron levels down, but I didn't understand about that. Why? The main thing for this is because most people digest so poorly. And when you see the pros and cons of vegetarian diet versus uh, meat diet, uh, a lot of vegetarians uh, do better on their blood work because, guess what, it's a lot easier to digest vegetables thoroughly. And when you don't digest thoroughly, guess what? You produce a lot of toxins in your gut because your digestion is replaced by putrefaction and you get a lot of the anaerobic microbes, clostridium, proliferating in your gut. You produce a large amount of toxins. Uh, And as I like to say, uh, the whole gut ends up chronically becoming like another root canal in your body. So healthy digestion is absolutely essential for long-term good health. And uh, if you took an enormous amount of digestive enzymes, uh, chewed very well, uh, drank very little liquid to dilute your enzymes with your meal, did proper food combinations, uh, you could ingest more than that amount of meat per day safely. But that figure is picked because that's really about the amount of meat that most people that pay reasonable attention to chewing and liquid and enzymes can digest properly if they try to. But if you just uh, wolf down food uh, and don't pay attention to combinations, uh, you'll end up basically causing more of the meat in your food to rot than to digest. And I, and I don't mean to, mean to me just be gross or dramatic, but that's exactly what happens. And uh, there's always some families that have some members of the family when they, when they go to the bathroom and do all their business, nobody can come near the bathroom for, for 15 minutes. That's called food rotting. That's called putrefaction. It's, it's not normal to have a bowel movement that chases everybody out of the house uh, for 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, a little bit of slight malodor is normal and is indicative of properly functioning digestive processes. Very, very interesting. You also talked about how it's good to give six units of blood one time a year, that it helps the ferritin levels go down, right? Absolutely. That's the most efficient way to get iron out is to donate the blood whenever you can. Uh, And if for some reason you have a condition where they don't want to take your blood because uh, you had hepatitis this out of the other, you should make an effort uh, with your doctor or to find a doctor who's willing just to take a unit uh, a, uh, a blood out of you uh, and throw it away every couple months so that you can, uh, you can get rid of these six units, six units a year. The thing that's very little realized, uh, because you read most books and they just say, well, there's, there's no way to get rid of iron. Well, that, that's not true at all. Uh, Obviously, you can by giving blood, but that's because you're physically taking the blood out of the body, which has a large amount of iron in it. However, iron is very readily excreted in the sweat. The thing is, is we live in a society where we give people much more iron than they need, and we keep them inside environments that are never too cold, never too hot, and just brings the natural sweating process down to just about zip. But when you use a far infrared sauna, you can get levels down quite readily because you not only excrete iron in the sweat, you excrete a wide number of toxins. Also some good things like potassium and magnesium, but those are readily restituted with proper supplementation. And so there's also a large body of evidence, interestingly enough, that that sort of indirectly shows Although there's a lot of a lot of evidence that you don't that you that also exists to support the fact that iron comes out in the sweat, is that it's very common in both male and female endurance athletes who, of course, push aerobic stress to the max and sweat very much on a regular basis 
to be found to have iron deficiency anemias. In other words, they just sweat their iron out so effectively that they knock down their iron levels to the point where they're not quite having enough iron in their system to make the amount of blood that they need. So all of this circulates and shows the fact that iron is something that you can regulate, but you need to pay specific attention. You need to track your ferritin to know that you're getting the result that you're aiming for, but make no doubt about it. You'll live a much longer, healthier life if you can keep that ferritin between 15 and 25 uh, and don't even think about having it in the hundreds. I'm a member of the Life Extension Foundation out of Florida, which is where I have my blood levels tested, and they're very affordable, where some doctors may not be willing for people to be in charge of the tests and the levels that they want to see. You can order your own tests there, which I think is really good. No, that's absolutely true. I, I've, I've been a member for a long time as well, and it's a very convenient way to get blood work done. It's quite inexpensive. I think the ferritin we're just talking about is like $30, something along those lines. And, and you can check your routine blood count and standard biochem panel for mm, $25 or $30. So uh, it's, it's, it's something that's uh, very easy and uh, your listeners should always keep in mind is, is a good option. They just did a very big article on coffee in their magazine. And without derailing our conversation, does coffee compete with vitamin C absorption? No, not that I know of. Uh, but having said that, I, I, I guess I should say I'm not aware of any specific data indicating that caffeine or any of the other components of coffee will directly compete with vitamin C. Uh, having said that, there are receptor mechanisms that facilitate vitamin C uptake, uh, and uh, you can have things that will compete with vitamin C for this uptake, so I should just say I'm not aware of that evidence if it exists. You recommend taking inositol hexaphosphate. What is that? Uh, inositol hexaphosphate. This is uh, also known as phytate, phytic acid. It's something that's been around for ages. Uh, most scientists, especially those that deal with nutrition and diet, know that when you have high phytates in a food, you don't get a whole lot of absorption of the uh, minerals, zinc, magnesium, manganese, etc., with it because the phytates bind it up so well. So that's what inositol hexaphosphate is. It's a natural chelator. When you dose it regularly, but importantly, dose it on an empty stomach so it just doesn't waste, if you will, all of its time binding up something that you've just eaten, take it on an empty stomach, allow it to get absorbed. It disseminates very well throughout the body and binds not only iron, but also uh, deposits of calcium, uh, and that's a whole other long story of, of the toxicity of calcium, but generally when you have something that's taking calcium and iron out on a long-term basis, uh, you're doing something that's, that's quite healthy. That's interesting. Do you take probiotics? Uh, those are the type of things that uh, I personally use uh, if, if there's been a little gastric or intestinal problem and I'm trying to sort of reset things. I might do a sea flush, get that out, then initially take a little uh, probiotics for a day or two. I'm not advising against it, but no, it's not something I regularly take. What are your challenges to get this information out to really awaken an unaware public regarding vitamin C? Well, you know, the, the challenge, I guess in a nutshell, is trying to dislodge the death grip that... Medicine and politics, I say politics because the FDA plays a big role too, that medicine and politics plays <clears throat> on the dissemination of information. I'm sure the only reason we're having this radio uh, interview at all is the fact that the Internet has been in existence now for 15 to 20 years right. and very quickly and profoundly eliminated the uncompromising hold that medicine had on information before it. I mean, even Pauling, Linus Pauling, had 
incredible articles that the New England Journal of Medicine not only turned down, they would turn down, invite revisions, turn it down again, invite revisions, and over the course of a couple years then finally reject the article, which of course means the whole time that they don't want that information out there and they're going to do their best to frustrate its delivery. I mean, again, if the good Dr. Pauling had been alive when the Internet was out, <clears throat> I'm sure he had, he'd have had a very active website, and I'm sure he'd have had many millions of readers uh, looking to what his thoughts were on a daily basis. And even though 100% of his thoughts might not have been right, a much larger percentage of his thoughts could be relied upon to be right than just about anybody else I know of. So uh, we're making inroads. I tell you what, uh, I don't like to be pessimistic, but i got to say I'm not optimistic at this point in time that we're going to keep the health freedoms that we have right now in this country very much longer. I'm scared I mean, myself. FDA I'm very scared. a long way to shut down vitamin C, and very recently, this is something I, I predicted a long time ago. I'm very sad that I was correct. I have said a long time ago that when vitamin C was realized to be as good as it is, the pharmaceuticals would either try to slightly alter the vitamin C molecule and patent it or combine it with something else. And so they've now had a company come out that has put vitamin C together with vitamin K3, which has been a very well-known and very fine-working combination uh, to treat cancer and induce cancer cell death in a wide number of patients. The FDA first took vitamin K3 off the market to end that, and then now they're allowing this company to put vitamin C and K3 together as an approved product and charge a mere $900 a dose. Absolutely criminal and outrageous. Uh, that would be a good summarization of that. Yes, ma'am. I know this is in your book, but I really would like you to share what happened to Alan Smith. This is the most radical, mind-blowing wake-up call. Can you okay. share a little bit about that? Because I think most listeners wouldn't believe it. Well, about two years ago, I got an email from someone who had uh, read my book, Curing the Incurable, and he described his brother-in-law being on the intensive care unit in Auckland, New Zealand with the swine flu, uh, sustained only on life support. Uh, and he said, can vitamin C help? What should I do? And having no idea that any of this would actually be implemented, I knew for a fact that Dr. Klenner had brought many comatose patients out from viral syndromes and restored them completely. <clears throat> I said, well, you know, give them 50 grams of vitamin C IV and uh, once or twice a day and do that every day and see what happens. And then I thought nothing more of it. So anyway, to make a long story short, although the story is fascinating, and if, a, if anybody wants to look at the video itself, it's on the front page of my website, peakenergy.com. They actually, although all the doctors were opposed of it, against, ex, against it except one, <clears throat> amazingly enough, this intensive care unit in New Zealand started giving this fellow 50 grams once or twice a day for the first two or three days. Immediately, he started showing signs of consciousness, struggling against the tube. His test started improving. His white-out lungs started clearing up. Now, this, mind you, this was somebody they were literally ready to pull the plug on and let die. And the family was saying, well, don't tell us you don't want to give vitamin C. If all you're willing to do is let him die, then use the doggone vitamin C. Now, here's where the really <laughs> sad, sad, sad part of the story comes, and that is he got progressively better. But then after some more meetings, there was a clandestine decision to reduce the dose of vitamin C from, I believe, 50 grams twice a day to one gram twice a day. Now, this begs a lot of questions. If you're anti-vitamin C, why give vitamin C at all? Or, if you see vitamin C is working really well, why would you drop the dose by 
And I'm going to tell you my very sad, regretful conclusion is the doctors wanted to see the patient relapse and die while continuing this vitamin C, even though at a microscopic dose, so they could say, well, we continued the vitamin C and he died anyway. But guess what? The vitamin C was so effective that all it did was slow down dramatically his rate of recovery. He still progressively improved. They got the tube out, and once they got the tube out of his mouth and lungs, he was able to take some of the liposome-encapsulated vitamin C orally, and he was out of the hospital in a week or two. I love it. This is so incredible. Everybody has to go to TomLevyMD.com. Now, Dr. Levy, you're also a JD. You're an attorney, right? Yes, ma'am. Which did you get first, your MD or your JD? Oh, no, I had the MD for quite a few years. I got the JD back in 1995. And why did you get the JD? I saw all the torture legally and license-wise that Dr. Huggins was getting for doing what seemed to be, be near-miraculous things with his patients. And I said, well, you know, I have the time, I have the money, I have the ability and desire, and I just said it's the next step. I, I need this for my own edification and my own self-protection. I don't know, that might be the lamest or wimpiest decision there ever was for spending three years of your life torturing yourself with stuff you don't really enjoy and spending $100,000 in the process, but I did it. Have you ever had to use it? Uh, directly, per se, no. Uh, I believe it's played a role, the fact that I was a lawyer as well, in, in getting a few inquiries into license actions and everything just uh, dismissed and handled a whole lot quicker than they might have otherwise. So, so I actually think it's paid for itself. Uh, one thing I'll also give credit to law school for was I really think it helped me think even a bit more clearly and a bit more logically uh, and has allowed me to write my books, like, for example, Curing the Incurable. I wrote that with the idea that I want a sound, scientifically solid enough piece of evidence here that a doctor giving intravenous vitamin C or using vitamin C as a primary therapy for any of his patients can take it into a court of law and defend himself scientifically. That's fantastic. Well, I really want to thank you for being with us. I am going to consider this part one of a much bigger story. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to and learning from Dr. Thomas Levy. You can reach him by going to TomLevyMD.com, and you can order the lipospheric vitamin C by going to liveonlabs.com. I use it. It's fantastic. And I really want to thank you for being with us and everything you've gone through to bring vitamin C to us in the best format possible, as well as the new knowledge that is here for us today. Thank you for having me, Kim.